Here we are. Okay, good to see you all. We are going to tackle a bit of a complicated topic. We're not going to go through a text of the, the Torah, although we'll be quoting quote a few seconds from the Torah. Uh, but the general topic that I want to I don't even say tackle, uh, but try to begin to grapple with is the topic of slavery. Uh, many people are troubled by the fact that the Torah seemingly is endorsing, maybe even promoting a form of slavery, and that seems to that seems inconsistent with uh, perhaps what we'll call our inner moral compass. Certainly, the way our world looks at the notion of slavery, and in many respects, seems to be in contradiction to a notion that the Torah promotes, this notion of uh, every human being being uh, born in Tzelem Elohim, this, this idea that, that we're all in some ways godly, and the notion of one person lording over another seems rather inconsistent with that, with that notion. Okay, looks like uh, good to have so many people back. I, I, I gave up on a larger crowd, so <laughs> I, I only have one print out there. If anyone who's sitting next to each other are able to share and... Maybe. Oh, thank you, Estelle, for, uh, you don't have to, but uh, the kids appreciate it. Oh. Uh, thank you for letting me know. Thank you. Okay. And we're at the cute little clip, too. Okay. Thank you, Estelle. Um, okay. Um, sorry. Is that, if, if anyone's sitting next, okay. Does everyone have enough paper? Okay. Sorry. We're good? Okay. 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 Okay, so let's begin. What we're going to do, and first of all, we're going to, we're gonna, we're gonna just go through a number of sources that I think will, will broaden our understanding. You may or not, I, I don't think, I don't know, you may walk away feeling completely at ease with the halacha. Let's, let's start over here. Is anyone at, ill at ease with the notion of slavery in the Torah? Okay, you don't have to be. You don't have to be. Ish, yes, ish is okay. Or no is okay too. No is okay too. Uh, okay, so I, I, I'm hoping what my goal is, you know, is, is, is not like, okay, you were X and now you're going to be Y. You were like completely LEDs and you're going to be completely comfortable. But I think we're going to be able to move, I think with learning some, some of the different principles over here, I imagine being able to move the, 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 our, our personal line of where we are at significantly by giving a little bit of historical context and, and, and more than that. Okay, so let's, let's jump in. Uh, let's first begin with a quote from Rav Soloveitchik. He writes as follows. He says, and again, just the reason we're doing this in this week's Parsha is because this week's Parsha, Parsha's Mishpatim, begins with the laws of slavery. Okay, so says Rav Soloveitchik, following the giving of the Ten Commandments, the Torah should have proceeded immediately with chapter 24, in which God tells Moshe to seal the covenant with the people. Okay, what he's referring to is the fact that the end of Parsha's Mishpatim, you have what seems like uh, there, there's a big debate amongst the Rishonim, but uh, basically more or less a depiction of Ma'amad Harsinai, of the giving of the Torah. You have, this is the famous words Nasev and Ishma are not said in Parshas Yisro, they're said in Parshas Mishpatim. Okay, so is that taking place at the same time? Is it something after? But more or less, it's, it's a description which relates to the giving of the Torah. So says Rav Soloveitchik, the end of this week's Parsha should have really been connected to the giving of the Torah, i.e. last week. Parsha's Mishpatim, however, represents a dramatic departure from these themes. Instead of continuing, continuing with the revelation, there is an interruption. Parsha's Mishpatim, with its many detailed laws of damages, seems to depart from the context. Apparently, Parsha's Mishpatim is an interpretation of the Ten Commandments. Okay, so Rav Soloveitchik, and really this is an idea that the Ramban uh, lays out as well, and that is that Parsha's Mishpatim is almost an elaboration on the Ten Commandments. You know, the Ten Commandments are ten laws. Why are those laws chosen? And many see in them almost a distilled version, a, like a short version of the entirety of the Torah. And so the Ten Commandments are just the, the, the cliff notes or, you know, basically the short version. And then you have the elaborated version in Parshas Mishpatim. Without Parshas Mishpatim, there can be no kingdom of priests and holy nation. 
Okay, the conclusion then is that civil laws carry religious significance. Discussions of uh, destruction of property and tr- trespassing are not merely violations of civil law, but moral transgressions. Okay, so I, I share this piece. It's not directly related to slavery, but I think it's a very important introduction to our Parsha. Our Parsha, which is an elaboration, as Rav Soloveitchik says to the Ten Commandments, is meant to teach us that, you know, at the same moment that we're talking about this incredible revelation at Sinai, at the same moment that God spoke to two million people and had this incredibly euphoric religious experience, he then goes ahead and shares civil law. Things that you would expect to you know, sit in in a boring uh, law class, right? Something which you don't normally see as, you know, what happens if you're playing baseball and your baseball hits the window of, of your neighbor, right? Is that something which is like, no, you would think about, you know, medit- the, the idea of like how you transcend yourself and how you connect to God. The point that, that the Torah is making, the point that the Torah is making in placing it here is to teach us that things that we would call civil law, things that we would say, oh, there is civil law and religious law. In Judaism, we don't see any difference. In Judaism, they're one and the same. There is no difference from our perspective between the laws of Shabbos and the laws of how you interact with someone else. If you went ahead, you know, just yesterday, I was just walking through a hallway in in an office building and someone had spilled some water. Okay, that's this week's parsha, right? So you'd say I spilled some water. Okay, what's the big deal? I, I'm a. Are you an observer? Are you are you someone who keeps the Torah? Of course I am. I, I keep Shabbos. I daven this morning. I put on tefillin. No, you spilled water on the floor, right? What is that? That's what we call a bar. That is a literal. The literal terminology in the Torah is digging a pit, placing something on the ground where people could stumble. And, and doing that is just as much of the religious experience as anything else. Okay, I say that again as an introduction. Now let's jump into slavery. Rav Hirsch begins, and I share this on uh, our 613 for those who join it. Uh, he, he suggests that the reason the Torah begins this elaboration of the Ten Commandments, specifically with the laws of slavery, he writes, and I'm going to quote Mahatma Gandhi, not Rav Hirsch, but it's Mahatma Gandhi says more or less the same idea that Rav Hirsch was saying. He writes, and this is a quote, a nation's greatness is measured by how it treats its weakest members. A nation's greatness is measured by how it treats its weakest members. Forget a nation. A person is judged. A person is measured by how this individual treats the weakest members. You want to know if someone's a kind person? Don't look at how they treat, uh, you know, a friend. Look how they treat the garbage man. Look how they treat the cashier, right? That's how you read the waiter, right? Look how they treat the person when you're sitting on hold for two and a half hours, right? How do they treat that person? That probably is the real litmus test, right? Um, and you're trying to get your money back because they ripped you off, okay? So, so that is, right, that's the litmus test. And therefore, the Torah, when it begins discussing what it means to be a Jew, what, it mean, what the Torah is all about, it begins by discussing an individual or a group of people who are on the bottom rung of society, a slave, Right? A slave is someone that you think about, you know, as we'll see more and more about, you know, people would completely disregard and, 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 and ignore and, and trample upon both figuratively and literally. And yet the Torah, as we'll see, has many laws that demonstrate how kind, how gracious, how thoughtful we have to be towards the slave. And this to teach us that, again, when we think about make a self-assessment, am I a good person? Don't think about how you interact with the people in this room, although that's important too. But how do we interact with the people that we could kind of get away with being rude and obnoxious with. Those are, that's how a society and how a person is judged. Okay, now let's go to another source, and this is a Gemara in Kiddushin. The Gemara in Kiddushin writes as follows, and it's a reference to the slave that is discussed in the beginning of this Parsha. There's a word, there's a, ter- a phrase in our Parsha which says, prospered with you. Okay, so without getting into what, what the specific context is, but it's talking about your slave. And the Gemara writes, with you, what does it mean with you? With you, the words are a little extra. So the Gemara says, with you in food, with you in drink, and therefore it should not be that you eat refined bread, and he, meaning the slave, 
eats coarse bread, that you drink old wine and he, the slave, drinks new wine, that you sleep on cloth and he, the slave, sleeps on straw. Based on this, they say, the Gemara writes, all who acquire a Jewish slave is like one who has acquired a master. A person who acquires a slave is like you acquire a master. The Gemara says, if you have one pillow, one pillow, which by the way, and back in the day is kind of, it's amazing when you think about how spoiled we are. But imagine you have one pillow, right? And you're about to go to sleep and you have a slave. Who gets the pillow? The slave gets the pillow, right? So first and foremost, you already see, and again, just think of the little bit that we know of, uh, you know, American history, not that long ago, about how slaves were treated. This is, this is not even, like, not even in the same context, right? Meaning you're talking about the fact that you have to feed them the exact same food that you eat. That is completely beyond rare. That was, that was not done. That was simply not done. And so much so that if you have one item that's comfortable and you have to choose, he has to have the same thing as you do. And therefore, if you can't give him the same, you give him yours, right? So immediately you see that in terms of the respect and the dignity that is given to the slave, it's quite high. It's quite high. It's only for a Jew. Ah, very good, right? So I could pull a fast one on you and say, we're done the class. And look, mm-hmm. and we say, and this is all about slaves. And look, you have to treat slaves like this. And it's amazing. But uh, it, look at the next source. Look at the next source. Jewish slaves versus non-Jewish slaves. The Torah, you know, uh, we, we, it's important to note that there is a difference. There's a difference. There is a verse uh, that says, for they are my servants, referring to the Jewish people, whom I took out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. There is a limitation. As Jews, we are allowed to sell our slaves, uh, there's, a, there's an English term for it, where like a limited term, uh, right? We are allowed to sell yourself as a slave or the courts could sell someone as a slave if let's say they, they, they stole and they don't have enough money to pay back. The courts will step in and sell a Jew as a slave, but there's a limit. At, at the end of six years, at the, well, not, at the end, by the, when it comes to Shemitah, when it comes to the sabbatical year, the slave goes free. The slave goes free. Um, and, and so the bottom line is they are not going to be sold as slaves. However, the next verse, and your slave and your maidservant that you may have from among the nations around you, from them you may acquire slaves and maidservants and they shall be your property. Okay, so what I just said until now, so it's important, right? Some people, uh, someone said, I, I told someone, I was giving a class today on, on, the, on the topic of slavery, and they said, ah, you're going to read the Gemara and Kiddushin, it says you treat them better. I said, that's not accurate. I mean, that's not a fair answer. It's true. When it comes to Jewish slaves, when it comes to Jewish slaves, I'm not even bothered by that question. What that is essentially is like butlerhood. You know, basically you have people who uh, run out of money and they basically sell themselves. They basically, they, they're, they're, uh, they're living, you know, they're basically a live-in type of uh, help. That's what it is. You treat them with the utmost respect and you give them more than you have for yourself. So that's for a Jewish slave, but the Torah does distinguish and says there's something called a non-Jewish slave and they, they are your quote-unquote property. And so there, those same laws don't apply. We will see what laws do apply, but the law of treating them as like you treat yourself or that line that someone who acquires a slave is like one who acquired a master, it wasn't said in regards to those slaves, but we will see there are some significant, uh, very meaningful limitations around even non-Jewish slaves, which we're going to get into now. Okay, so again, the, the point that I'm trying to, a few points, and then we'll just, and then we'll jump into this in a much deeper fashion. First of all, uh, the idea that the Torah begins its laws, or the laws of the Torah with slavery is to teach us, and as we'll see, and there's a lot of compassion towards the slaves, is to remind us of that important idea that we began with, how we treat those in the bottom rung of society, that's the most important. When it comes to a Jewish slave, not even a question, because they are treated better than you have to treat yourself. Non-Jewish slaves, the Torah does describe as property, and does have certain implications, and that's what we're going to be getting into now. Yes? Uh, in Kedushin, does it uh, to separate how, uh, is there, do they darshan that from Pusik? 
Or does it come from a Tover Shabal path? No, so it comes from the Pasuk, the words prospered with you. It's a Pasuk in this week's Parsha, and it says Imcha, like the word with you. And it, the word, like, so, so it's, it's learned, it's learned, it's Russia from, from the Torah right, itself. That's what, doesn't that have to do with separation when they separate? How about how this business of the pillow, this is always used, uh, this example, is that, how do they get to that? You actually treat them better in the, when there's an option two people. Right, so from that, from that text, from that word in the text where it says imcha, with you, the implication of that word is that there's this notion of imcha, it means, you know, there, there's, two termina, there's two terms that are used uh, to, to say with in Hebrew. One is imcha and one is itcha. Taf and amem. Uh, the Malbim points out imcha has much more of a togetherness type of connotation, whereas itcha, like right now we are, we are together in the sense we're all studying the same thing. Whereas if we were on a subway, maybe we'd say probably itcha, because we're not really together, we just happen to be together. Right. So, so the, imcha so emphasizes there's equality and, and a sense of connection. But equal, but the, 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 this is always used as uh, if you have two, one pillow. And, right. You know, that, where, how does that come? Imcha would imply that sometimes you use the pillow, sometimes the slave uses. Well, it, it, it implies a requirement that it must be it must be the same, and if it can't be so, by definition, if it can't be the same, then you're gonna have to default to giving okay. to that individual. Okay, okay. So let's now go into the, some of the laws about slaves. Now here we're talking about non-Jewish slaves. We're on the bottom of that first page. First, we begin with killing a non-Jewish slave. So says the Torah in this week's parsha: If a person should strike his slave or his maidservant with a staff, and he or she dies by his hand, then he or she shall be avenged. But if he or she survives for a day or two, then he or she shall not be avenged, for he or she is his master's property. So what does this mean? So again, it says if you kill a slave, okay, there's a scenario where the slave doesn't die immediately. But in a scenario where a person, a person goes ahead, a Jewish person goes ahead and kills a non-Jewish slave, the Torah says that person, that the slave shall be avenged. What does avenged mean? So let's see, the Mechilta, which is one of the early Midrashic uh, bodies of, of literature uh, says as follows. He shall be avenged, i.e. the death penalty. The death penalty. If you kill a slave, you kill a slave, you get the death penalty. Says the Gemara, or says the Mechil, does it mean literally a death penalty or just equivalent monetary compensation? You know, sometimes when the Torah says a certain punishment, it's understood to be non-literal. What's the most famous example in this week's Parsha? Eye for an eye, right? The Torah says eye for an eye, and we know all the opinions in the Gemara agree it doesn't mean that literally. It's meant to be monetary. So similarly, the Gemara says, maybe when it says he shall be avenged, which sounds like killing, maybe it's just a monetary compensation. So Rabbi Natan taught, here the Torah mentions revenge, and later it also mentions revenge, and I shall bring upon you avenging swords to avenge the covenants, just as there the reference is to the sword, i.e. physical death. It is so, so likewise here. Okay, the bottom line is, if you kill a slave, you get killed. Okay? What would happen if you kill a slave in, uh, this, in Alabama in 1812? Gornished. Gornished mit gornished, I believe. You'd have to, oh, you'd pay this master, right? You'd have to pay the master back, right? Uh, for stealing from him, you'd pay him back the same way you'd pay him back if you killed his uh, ox. But nothing would happen to you, right? Sorry? Are we talking about intentionally or unintentionally? Good question. So here we're talking about intentionally. For there to be the death penalty, we're talking about intentionally. It would have to be deliberate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, says the Rambam, it appears to me that one who strikes his slave, his own slave, with a knife or a sword or stone or fist, and he was diagnosed as being likely to die, meaning it was a type of beating that was likely to kill someone and he in fact dies and the law of a day or two does not apply to the master. Okay, I'll explain what this means in a moment. Even if the slave dies after a full year, he has died as a result of the master. It is for this reason the text mentions with a staff because the Torah allows him to strike only with a staff, a stick, a strap, not with something that is designed to kill. 
So here the Rambam, and I'm not just, without getting into all the details, the Rambam is writing, if you kill your own slave, okay, again, 1812, Alabama, you kill your own slave, what happens to you? Truly nothing, right? You are killed. You are executed, right? That is a radical law. And it's not a radical law 3,000 years ago when the Torah was given. It's a radical law 150 years ago, a few miles from here, right? It's a radical law. And the Torah says, yes, and again, I don't think assuage all of your discomforts. I don't believe. But the Torah does allow for, as the Rambam infers, the Torah does allow for some level of beating, but it has to be done with a tool that is not going, doesn't have the possibility of killing. Now keep in mind, it also, the Torah also allows, or again, I'm not going to say encourages, but uh, uh, certainly historically, not historically, probably for many of us sitting in this room, we're probably hit with a stick, a potch, or whatever, you know, and in, 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 in the not so long ago world, that was some much, much more normal, right? Um, so the Torah... I'm saying forget Beeston in school. My teacher had a stick and it was like novel that he said, I used to use this to hit people across the face. Now I'm not allowed to. Okay. But like five years before I came to school, they were smacking people, right? You probably got people maybe. Yeah, you got knuckles. Anyone here? Okay, don't have to raise your hands, but right? We got, right? I mean, this was, this was done. This was done in school, right? Um, so the point is the Torah is allowing, is allowing um, the beating of a slave, the, 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 the whip, you know, some form of something, but it has to be done with something that cannot cause death. That's what the Ramam writes. So again, just to pause for a second, again, does, does that make you feel great? Not necessarily, but I just want to just get, in terms of the difference between, again, not even the ancient world, but the very recent world, the Torah does allow for slavery, but if a person kills a slave or even uses a tool, a weapon that could kill a slave, they are fully guilty for doing so. And if the slave dies, that person gets the death penalty themselves. Yes. So, so what he's getting is the Torah does make that distinction. The Torah makes the distinction between dying right away or dying in a day or two. The Rambam understands that to mean um, that the difference between right away or a day or two is to say, um, he understands this a little bit broadly. And what that means is that if a, if a person dies a day or two later, um, and, and here's where he adds a little bit of commentary, and we are not confident that it was the beating alone which caused this death, then the person is going to be off the hook. Meaning, you have cases in the Gemara where talk about a person who perhaps has some pre, you know, maybe we could assess that there was some, something else, some pre-existing condition that, that combined. So the Torah makes that distinction between a day or two or not. The Rambam understands that broadly to say, it doesn't mean literally a day or two, because let's say a person beats their slave with, uh, you know, with, with, a, with a baseball bat over the head, and, and they happen to have, the, you know, and, and whatever, they die a day or two later. You're still guilty. A day or two is more of a, a, a simon mill, so more of like an indication that this is not necessarily a... Exactly. Okay. Now here we're going to get into injuring a slave. Okay. This to me is the most fascinating part. Um, So again, Sukkim from our Parsha. Let's turn the page. Uh, Shmos 21, 26, 27. If a person strikes the eye of a slave or the eye of his maidservant and blinds him or her, he shall send the slave free on account of the eye. Right? So if a person knocks the eye out of of their slave, the slave goes free. And if he causes the tooth of his slave or of his maidservant to be knocked out, even just a tooth, he shall go free on account of the tooth. Okay? So this is the law of shein va'ayin. That basically, there's this notion that if a master an, goes ahead and knocks out an eye or a tooth, and the Gemara describes, it's not just those two things, any limbs, any external limbs, if there's a finger that's cut off, right? If there's a, a, any external limbs that are cut off in any way, the slave goes free. Okay? Now, now what we're going to do is, I don't know who this is, Rabbi Shlomo Rubinstein, and I forgot exactly where I got this text, uh, but it's, it's brilliant. 
and it just puts everything into such amazing historical context. So we'll read this piece together, and I think it'll give us, a, 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 to me, it gave me a brand new and, 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 and brilliant understanding of this law of knocking out the tooth or knocking out the eyes. Let's read it together. So it says of Shlomo Rubinstein in a book called Kadmonios Halacha. He writes, The Gemara teaches, There are 24 protruding limbs of a person, for all of which a slave is set free. Right? As I told you, it's not just an eye or a tooth. The Gemara says eye and tooth are examples. There are 24, okay? What are those? The tips of the fingers, toes, ears, nose, uh, penis, breast. Rebbe says also the testicles, but Azai says also the tongue, okay? And it's a much longer list. Okay. The situation of a slave, and here now, now this is the commentary of Rabbi Rubenstein. The situation of a slave in ancient times was truly awful. He was like an object owned by his master who was free to do whatever he wanted in order to force the slave to perform hard labor day and night and to use them for all kinds of perverted purposes, right? Anyone who knows American history, uh, we know that what, what was done to slaves. The master could beat a slave mercilessly for any major or minor wrongdo- wrongdoing. He could permanently maim his limbs without fear of any punishment. For any purpose desired by the master, the slave could be blinded. Herodotus writes that the Scythians used to blind their captive slaves so that they would work in producing butter. And there are several other such purposes for which slaves would be struck with blindness. To the point, and this is the key line, where putting out eyes became a symbol of slavery. Let's pause. Who is a famous slave whose eyes are knocked out? Shimshon. Shimshon. Right? We are so Baruch Hashem. We are so influenced by our sages. And if I were to ask a child, why was Samson, why were his eyes blinded? So what, what, there's a famous teaching by, by our sages, Martin Soto, that says he was blinded because... He uh, used his eyes. He looked where he shouldn't have looked. He was uh, attracted to the Philistine women. And therefore, as a punishment, his eyes were struck out. Great. That is true. But there is also what we call pshat. What's the simple reason? Why in the world the Philistines could have done any form of punishment? Why do they blind him? Why do they blind him? So Rabbi Rubenstein is pointing out, and this is historically true, that they were oftentimes blinding slaves was oftentimes something that they would do as a matter of course to slaves. That was an indication. You see a person that eyes ah, that's probably a slave. Okay, why would they do that? Um, um, so d- two different reasons. One is sometimes slaves are going to be around in uh, perhaps sensitive situations, right? They're going to be, uh, you know, hearing, uh, wheeling and dealing that might be unethical. They're going to be in the bedrooms. They're going to be in places where the masters did not necessarily want them to be fully aware of everything. Okay, so what do you do? Ah, he's going to see things or he's going to say things. So what do I do? I eliminate the faculty of speech or sight as a way of ensuring that they're still able to do what I need them to do, but without getting me into any trouble. So again, writes Ray Rubenstein, to the point where putting out eyes became a symbol of slavery. Likewise, prisoners taken in war were blinded as a sign of slavery, and this was done particularly to kings and officers of the defeated army as a sign of revenge and enslavement. For the same reason, Shimshon, Samson, was blinded by the Philistines. And this apparently was also the meaning of the words of Nachash the Ammonite to the men of Yavish Gilad, Okay, uh, by this condition, I'll make a covenant with you. If you all put out your right eye. Okay, so, uh, so Nachash, uh, the Ammonite, goes ahead and he makes a condition. There, Nachash, uh, Ammon is a tribe that lived next to Israel. Okay, and he was a powerful king. And basically, he was threatening the Jews who were living in his vicinity. And he said, I will make a peace treaty for you only if you go ahead and po- put out your right eye. Now, again, you read the simple text and, and you're like, well, that's insane. Who would do that? And now you understand it's not literal. What it means is putting out your right eye is a way of saying, you are my slaves. You are going to be a tribute state to me, 
right? So in this context, right, the point that, that Rabbi Rubenstein is trying to make is that blinding the eye is so much tied up with what it means to be a slave that it becomes like a euphemism. If I say I want to blind your eye, that means I want you to be my slave. And that's what was happening with Nachash the Ammonite. Okay, as if to say, in order that you'll be slaves and prisoners of wars to me. Okay, for the same reason, King Tzidkiyahu was blinded by Nuhavuchanetzer, right? King Tzidkiyahu was one of the kings of Israel who was captured by the Babylonian king. And what is the first thing he do, do, what is the first thing that he does to him? He blinds him. Why? Why is he blinding him? Apparently, this was done in the ancient world. This was done as a way of showing, I am in control of you. You are my slave. And there's also the meanings of the words of Dasan and Aviram. Right? What do they say to Moshe? Will you put out the eyes of these men? And again, you read a pasuk like that. This is why this piece is so brilliant. Dustin and Aviram, they're the two troublemakers throughout the desert, in Israel and throughout the desert, who always challenge Moshe. And in Parshas Korach, Moshe comes over to them and confront, well, whatever, Moshe, they have a confrontation. And Dustin and Aviram stand up to Moshe and they say, what, are you going to blind us? You're like, what, what are you talking about? Who's blinding who? Moshe's talking about who's going to be the leader of the Jewish people. And that's the point. That's what they're trying to say. You want to be a master of us. You're making us into your slave. Now it makes sense, right? Blinding the eyes is, again, it just goes hand in hand with slavery. As if to say, and this is what it means, are we considered in your eyes as slaves, prisoners of war, that you will exert your power over us and do to us whatever you wish to drag us wherever you decide? Okay, this arrogance on the part of enslavers seems to have lasted until much later times, explaining even Herod's blinding of Bava ben Buta. The Gemara Bava Basra tells us that uh, Bava ben Buta, uh, okay, there's a whole story of, of, of Herod, King Herod, who was, uh, was, went ahead and was concerned about someone, uh, about someone's uh, alliances, about someone really supporting him or not. And what does he do? He blinds him. Again, what, what's with all the blinding? The blinding is not just one random cruel form of torture, which it is, but it's also specifically a form of saying, I am in charge of you. Okay, so blinding in the ancient world was a sign, a symbol of slavery, okay? For some wrongdoing in his work, let's go to the next paragraph. For some wrongdoing in his work, or for breaking some vessel, the slave's fingers or hands could be cut off, right? Uh, I'm trying to remember, what, what movie was that? Aladdin. Anyone remember Aladdin? Disney Aladdin, right? I believe there's a moment in the beginning of the movie where I think he like pickpocketed or something and they grab his hand, I believe, with the sword. Am I making this up? I believe, okay, this is like goes... Goes way back when. Okay, but the point is in the ancient world, you steal something and they catch you stealing, especially a slave. What do they do? Boom. They take off your hands. Okay. Okay. Very good. Right. Okay. This is apparently also done to prisoners of war as a sign of enslavement. This explains the amputation of thumbs and big toes by Adoni Bezek, who testifies that 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes amputated would gather under my table. Okay. Adoni Bezek is an enemy of the Jewish people. Okay. And the Jews are fighting against this person. And Adoni Bezek proclaims about his power that all these kings that are, uh, that he captured all are missing uh, limbs. They're missing thumbs. They're missing toes. And again, you read this like, what, what is going on, right? And what's going on is that this was a symbol, this is a way of showing you are the slave. Cutting off a finger was also a way. And that's why, again, you have reference to this, right? Okay, it's so important, right, to just have the historical context. When you read, there's so many passages in the Torah, which otherwise are very hard to understand, okay? Um, this was a practice amongst the Romans too. Seneca reports that for breakage of a small vessel, the slave's hands would be cut off or he would be put to death. Again, if you're a slave and you mess up, you don't get fired, you get your hands cut off or you get killed. Okay, sorry. Okay, um, let's go further. The amputation of a slave's ear, ears was so commonly practiced that it was established as a punishment for slaves. The Hammurabi Code, the Hammurabi Code is the most ancient uh, text 
that, that we have in the, in the ancient world um, that, that talks about the laws, the common laws of the time, seen as the ethical standard of the time. Okay, the Hammurabi Code stipulates, if a slave strikes a free person on the cheek, his ear is to be cut off. Okay, so let's say there's a fist fight that breaks, up, breaks out and a slave goes ahead and punches a, uh, a free person, you cut the ear off. If a slave tells his master, you are not my master, and it is proved that he is in fact his master, then his master is to cut off his ear. Okay. Slaves, further. Let's go second paragraph now on the, on the, on the third page. Slaves were routinely castrated in order that thoughts of women would not interfere with their work. And eunuchs were also used to serve women. This was so common, listen to this, this was so common that the term eunuch came to be used for all kinds of servants, even those not castrated, like Potiphar, the eunuch Aparo. Okay, so over here he's actually addressing a very, very important question. There is a, the Torah tells us, the Torah, who's Potiphar? Potiphar is the master of Yosef, okay? Yeah, master of Yosef. Yosef is sold as a slave, and who buys him? Potiphar, okay? Later on, the Torah, and he's called Sris Paro. Sris means someone who is castrated, a eunuch, okay? Later on in the Torah, after Yosef is taken out of the pit, the Torah tells us that he marries a woman who is the daughter of Potipharah. Potipharah, Potiphar sound kind of the same. And many assume that they're actually the same people. Okay, but then we're left scratching our heads. Wait a second. If he's really castrated, how did he have a child, Right? You with me? In other words, if it's the same person, right, which many assume it is, how could he possibly have a child? So there's a, like a, a wild Midrashic teaching which say that Potiphar, Potiphar and his wife adopted a girl who actually was none other than the daughter of Dina, who was, was uh, conceived from her, from Shechem's, uh, you know, from, from her engagement in Shechem, and, and uh, Malach took her to Egypt. It's, okay, cool, great, but assuming you're going with the Pshat, you want to go with the Pshat, simple reading, hard to understand. So he just addressed, he just answered the question. He says that Sris, a eunuch, it, be, it was so common for kings and queens to castrate their servants that it just became the term, you would just say a eunuch, you would just say a castrated individual when you're referring to a, someone working in a royal palace, even though not all of them were necessarily castrated. But it was so common that we would just use that term to refer to all those who worked in a palace. Right? And therefore, Potiphar, he's suggesting, wasn't actually castrated. It was just that it's a term that they used because it was so incredibly common. Right? That's why he's, he's emphasizing how common it is. And the royal wine baker, uh, a bearer, and baker who are referred to as Paro's eunuchs, they're also called Srisim. Okay. In summary, and here's, here's the point. In summary, there was nothing that prevented a master from doing any of this to his slave. It seems that they would even make their slaves deaf in order that they would not talk among themselves during their work or for other purposes. Right? In other words, they don't want them to, they want them to be efficient. And if you're going to be schmoozing, it gets in the way of your efficiency. So what do you do? You can't uh, watch over them all the time. So they would go ahead and they would make them deaf. Or they would strike or knock out their teeth. So they would not be able to eat much. Right? I watch my lahavdil. Uh, I watch my, my, uh, one of my children who was missing like, all her front teeth. Like, she's like, Rish. and it's very hard for her to eat because, right? We've all been there. Um, so, right? If they knock the teeth out, he slaves, they, they, they say, they, you say the master saves money, right? Cicero describes how it was common among the Romans that if a slave knew some evidence against his master, the master would cut out his tongue in order that he would not be able to testify. Again, which you wouldn't be punished for. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I should give out like a warning over here. This is a pretty gruesome piece. I apologize. Okay, and the maiming of slaves either by purposeless beating or for some purpose desired by the master was so common that blemishes were inflicted on the exposed body parts of the slave in order to mark him as a slave and the blemishes were a sign of slavery. There's ultimately something known as 
branding where they would go ahead and put an external sign. But another external sign was they'd be so beaten that, ah, oh, that's a slave because no one else would have such a terrible beating. It was against all of this that the Torah came to improve the lot of the slaves and their worth as much as was possible in those days. For beating to death, the Torah describes, he shall be avenged, which in the view of the sages refers to the death penalty. For causing blemishes to expose body parts in order to thereby signify that he was a slave, or even without such express intent, right? Even if a person by mistake, you know, they open a door and you open a door and you slam into your slave and boom, the teeth falls out. Tooth falls out, right? If I was a slave, I would stand behind the door all day, hoping the master knocks me in the face and I lose a tooth, I go free. He shall be sent him free, which is the opposite of the purpose of creating these blemishes. From this we derive the laws stipulating the master must set the slave free for causing blemishes upon the exposed body parts. So what he's saying is as follows. I think uh, there's two pieces to this. One is appreciate the historical context, but it's, it's much deeper than that. What he's saying is that the symbols, the signs that people used to demonstrate their mastery over a slave, it was to that the Torah says, uh-uh, yes, you could still, quote-unquote, own a person. But if you do anything to their physical body, if you do anything that would in any way detract from their, you know, in a, in a physical way from who they are, which was the typical form of saying, I am the master, Torah says, uh-uh. You can make them work, but you don't own their body, right? You may be able to put them to work. You, they are yours in that respect, but you don't own their body. There is a sense of dignity that the Torah is, in, is infusing into the world. The Torah does not, and we'll get back to that question, does not eradicate slavery, but the laws, when you think about all the novel laws of the Torah, not only and this is the point, that not only are they incredibly uh, radical for their historical context, but it's much more than they're much more compassionate. It's, it's specifically in the areas that demonstrates m- mastery. The Torah says, no, there's no such thing. You think you're going to cut off the tongue. You're going to cut it. You're going to castrate. You're going to do something that shows your mastery. When you do that, the second you cross that line, you, you've, you've lost your right to be able to have a slave, right? So it's not just the compassion that is given to the slave, radically different than the, than the world around them and around, yeah, but, but specifically the signs, any symbol, anything that's done to the physical body of the slave which would demonstrate mastery, to that the Torah says, you do that, the slave's going free. Fascinating? I think it's a fascinating piece. I don't know. Thoughts? Impressions? Okay. Yeah? And so it's a, again, historical context is fascinating and it just makes so much, all of a sudden, like, I, like, what's the deal? Like a tooth? You knock out a tooth? Who cares? Okay, whatever. Not who cares. It's not a simple thing, but like, you get it. Like an eye, you knock out. But the point is that it's all, anything, the Torah basically is picking on anything that was done to the slave and saying those specific things that were done to show that this is a slave, the Torah is saying, you cannot do that. You cannot go that far. We're not al- a- abolishing slavery, but what we are doing, what the Torah is doing is saying that any way that you are overreaching, we're going to let the slave go. The slave has every right to be free at that time. Okay. Yes. So it is maintaining, and again, there's an argument to be made. Okay, main, you know, is that enough? Is that enough as argument? But yes, it is certainly enhancing the dignity. How they look or whatever, you wouldn't immediately recognize them as a slave. Correct. Their dignity would be preserved. Preserved. Correct, correct. There's certainly, what I would say is an infusion. What the Torah's laws of slavery, what they do is infuse an incredible amount of, uh, of dignity to slavery. It doesn't abolish, but it does infuse an incredible amount of dignity to an otherwise incredibly undignified position. Yes. The, uh, the Eighth Commandment, uh, uh, do not steal, mm-hmm. is often, I understand, it, uh, applied to kidnapping, not to just right. uh, shoplifting. So there, that, and some rabbis say it's a capital punishment to kidnap. So most slaves that we think of are kidnapped. When we think of slavery, the, how they arrive at that, kidnapping. So that 
it takes the what we had is in uh, revolutionary times completely out of the picture because that was a capital offense to do something like that. Oh, correct, correct, correct. I, I, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That, that's one of the, I think, the biggest distinctions that we always uh, overlook is to, to, how did you acquire this person? Correct, correct. It is a complicated, how did you acquire, so certainly for a Jewish slave, that certainly would be relevant, meaning mm-hmm. there, there, certainly there's a sense of acquire, how did you acquire the non-Jewish slaves? The, the Torah doesn't get into much detail about that. It seems like a lot of it has to do with warfare. Warfare, this was, right. Yeah. Or maybe yeah. criminality. But not, Could be um, right, right, but right, or purchase but, but like I would think not kidnapping. Uh, yeah, um, I'm not a, sure if it precludes. I it's a good question. I'm not 100 percent sure. I'm not 100 percent sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's turn the page for a second. Here, I want to go now to the crux of the question. So I think we can stop here. I think to me that that piece just you know gives such a different dimension to slavery. What the Torah's description of slavery. But the question that many people still ask is, okay, you know, why doesn't the Torah go take it a step further? Instead of injecting dignity into slavery, which is by definition an undignified role, why doesn't Torah say, everyone's equal, no such thing as slavery, abolish it, abolish it, right? And to some people would say, well, you know, uh, the Torah wouldn't want to do something so radical. Well, the Torah's pretty radical, you know, it tells us to not work for a seventh day, it tells us not to work for a whole year. You know, the Torah gives us a lot of commandments which are not so easy uh, to maintain. So why doesn't the Torah go the next step? So I want to share with you two, uh, two views on this, one from Rav Cook and one from Rabbi Sachs. Let's turn the page. We'll start with Rav Cook first. He says a very interesting idea, which I think may have lost some of its luster in the 21st century. He's writing this in the early 20th century, okay? So keep in mind, you know, the, 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 the historical context when he's writing this. He says, you should know that slavery, as with all the moral upstanding ways of God in which the righteous walk and the evil stumble, never in itself caused any fault or error. Slavery is a natural law amongst the human race. Okay, that's a pretty bold statement. Um, he says, indeed, there's no difference between legal slavery and natural slavery. I'll explain. In fact, legal slavery is within the jurisdiction of the Torah and is legislated in order to control certain flaws. And this because God anticipated the reality of natural slavery. Let me explain. The reality of life is that there is rich and poor, weak and strong. A person who has great wealth hires poor people legally in order to do his work. Those employees are in fact natural slaves due to their socio-economic standing. For example, coal miners, okay? This is in a pre, uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, union time and pre many of the laws of coal miners, right? So these people go to work in the mine of their own free will, but they are in fact slaves to their employers. And maybe if they were actually owned by their employers, they would be better off. And he explains, the rich with their stone hearts scoff and all morals and ethics. They don't care if the mines lack air and light, even if this shortens the life expectancy of their workers, whose numbers run into tens of thousands, many of whom become critically ill. They certainly won't engage in any extra expense to improve working conditions in the mines. And if a mine shift collapsed, burying workers alive, they don't care. Tomorrow they will find new workers to employ. If these people were owned by the master, by legal slavery, he would have a financial interest to look after their lives and well-being because they are his own assets. Okay, so let's just put ourselves in the early 20th century for a second. Forget some of the developed laws in the world that we have right now. But it's a fascinating insight that he's making, right? In the ancient world, what do you do? You have some work in the coal mines, right? So what do you do? You put up a sign and you say, you know, anyone wants to come work, uh, come work. And they give them like, whatever, a dollar a day, whatever it is, and they go work in the coal mines. And let's say five of them die. Okay. Is it the owner's responsibility? No, it is not. 
right? The owner's not responsible. So the next day, you put up another sign, because guess what? There are a lot of people who need work. And the next day, they'll get another 100 people to come and do the work. And there's no investment, there's no care about the impact. But if you own them, slaves were, were owned. And there was a, a financial investment. There's a financial investment because if the slave dies, it's a response, you know, you, you lose out. It's like you're, you're, you know, anything else that you have that, that, that dies, you, you invest. It's like, again, I, 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 I feel bad saying it, like using this as an example, but, you know, you have a, again, it's, it feels terrible to compare a person to an object, but you have a car. So you don't just drive your car recklessly and never do any oil changes. You want to make sure it lasts, right? So if you have half a brain, you, you know, whatever, you, you, you take care of it a little bit, right? Uh, you make sure that it, that it has the, the wherewithal so it's going to last because it's your investment, right? So if a person saw their slaves in that fashion, that they would invest in them, right? Now, one could argue today with a whole bunch of laws that, that restrict a lot of this, maybe it would be different. It's a fair argument, but it's a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating you know, turn of perspective there of Cook is suggesting, okay? That's one approach to this question, saying that, no, in actuality, owning in some ways invests us more. And again, we could debate how relevant that argument. I think this argument still carries a lot of weight today, but we could debate to what extent that argument carries weight today. Okay. Rabbi Sachs takes a very different approach. If you turn back the page, Rabbi Sachs takes a pretty, a pretty radical approach to this idea. Um, and it's an idea which is not only found in his writings. It's found in a couple of, uh, a couple of individuals uh, share similar type of notion, but it's, uh, it's, it's a radical idea. It's a radical idea. Let's see what he says. It says Rabbi Sachs, um, you know, I'll just pause to one, one, one second because I don't think he mentioned this. You know, there's nowhere in the Torah. The Torah says, keep Shabbos. The Torah says, uh, eat kosher. The Torah does not say, own a slave. Keep slave, right? It doesn't say own a slave. It just, it's, it's neutral. It's, it, it acknowledges it and gives parameters to it, but it doesn't actually, it's not a mitzvah. So I just want to be clear. It's, it's accepted. It doesn't banish it, but it also doesn't necessarily Promote it, okay? With that in mind, let's see. Says Ray Sachs, it doesn't say abolish slavery. Surely it should, have, it should have done. Is that not the whole point of the story thus far? Joseph's brother is selling into slavery. He, as, Egypt, as the Egyptian viceroy, Tzafnaz Paneach, threatens them with slavery. Generations later, when a pharaoh arises who knew not Joseph, the entire Israelite people become Egypt's slaves. Slavery, like vengeance, is a vicious circle that has no natural end. Why not then? Give it a supernatural end. Why did not God say, there shall be no more slavery? This is the question we're asking. So he says, the Torah has already given us an implicit answer. Change is possible in human nature, but it takes time. Time on a vast scale. Centuries, even millennia. There is little doubt that in terms of the Torah's value system, the exercise of power by one person over another without their consent is a fundamental assault against human dignity. This is not just true of the relationship between master and slave. It is even true, according to the many classic Jewish commentators, of the relationship between kings and subjects, rulers and ruled. According to some commentators, the Barbanel, for example, he believes that the notion of a monarchy is antithetical to Judaism. Okay, it's a whole discussion to its own. Maybe we'll have a chance to discuss it. According to these sages, it is even true of the relationship between God and human beings. The Talmud says that if God really did coerce the Jewish people to accept the Torah by, quote-unquote, suspending the mountain over their heads as the Gemara seems to indicate, that would constitute an objection of the, to the very terms of the covenant itself. We are God's avadim, servants, only because our ancestors freely chose to be. Okay. So slavery, says Rabbi Sachs, is to be abolished. But it is a fundamental principle of God's relationship with us that he does not force us to change faster than we are able to do so of our own free will. So Mishpatim does not abolish slavery, but it sets in motion a series of fundamental laws that will lead people, albeit at their own pace, to abolish it of their own accord. 
If history tells us anything, it is that God has patience, though it is often sorely tried. He wanted slavery abolished, but he wanted it done by free human beings coming to see of their own accord the evil it is and the evil it does. The God of history, who taught us to study history, had faith that eventually we would learn the lesson of history, that freedom is indivisible. We must grant freedom to others if we truly seek it for ourselves. I miss Rabbi Sachs, right? Such a beautiful way of writing. Okay, um, but Rabbi Sachs over here, right? So what, what's Rabbi Sachs saying? Rabbi Sachs is saying that there is a notion of evolution within the Torah. That doesn't mean, I want to be clear, Rabbi Sachs is not saying when God said keep Shabbos, then there's an evolution in terms of what that means. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is that there are times when the Torah doesn't necessarily close the door on certain actions. It allows us to do certain things, but sets us, uh, you know, sets us down the path where we eventually on our own come to say, Maybe not. I'll give a much more benign example, which actually relates to Rabbi Cook. Rav Cook was uh, known to be a vegetarian. A vegetarian. He believed that fundamentally the Torah indicates that in an ideal world, animals are supposed to be part of, in some way, lower, but part of the human, you know, kingdom. So the Torah gives us a couple of indications. So he believed, I'm ready. You know, I'm ready to, to take that next step. But the Torah recognizes our flaws, our weaknesses, and therefore it doesn't say you can't eat meat make a very difficult life for many of us, right? So, so therefore, it sets us on a path where maybe eventually some, again, according to some at least, maybe we'll come to that place. So that's what Rabbi, Rabbi Sachs is suggesting over here. The Torah to go ahead and abolish slavery may not have been feasible, right? Keep in mind, you know, the, 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 the entire economy, right? You think of the, the story of Yitzhiya Mitzrayim, the whole 10 plagues and all that. You know, when we think about it from a, from a more sophisticated perspective, we recognize how difficult of a challenge it was for Paro. It wasn't like, oh, there's two million, million people you're mistreating. Their entire economy rested on those slaves. The same way the South, you know, many people, you read about, you know, many, many of the slave masters in the South who were, you know, uh, very, uh, um, you know, sensitive to the, to, to the notion of slavery being evil, but they were also stuck, right? Many, who is it? A couple of the presidents went ahead and they said, after I die, let the slaves go free. It's almost like such a self-centered uh, type of approach, right? But basically this notion of, you know, they recognized that it was, they needed it. And that's why the South went to war. It wasn't over the morality of slavery. It was over the finances of slavery. It was over the fact that their entire economy revolved around free or whatever, cheap trade, right? And they wouldn't have survived, right? So it says, what Rabbi Sachs is arguing is that God did not, it was too much, so to speak, for people, for society to handle, to have a society without slaves, and therefore kind of set us along that path where we would eventually get there. God believes in us. God believes that we could come to conclusions on our own. The Torah is meant to, to we're meant to think of the ideals the Torah promotes and, and use that to propel us all forward. Okay, so again, let's just go back to the beginning of our discussion. Uh, slavery does offend, I think, many of our moral sensibilities, or at least partially. It uh, does seem very off. Um, we, we certainly, when we see the historical context, without a doubt, the Torah's laws were compassionate, but it was much more than compassionate. As Rabbi Rubenstein points out, it was actually hitting slavery, so to speak, where it hurts. It was saying, you knock out the teeth, the teeth is what makes them free. You take out their eyes, you release, you take away their dignity, that's what sets them free. In other words, Torah is saying, we're going to protect them. The things that demonstrated physically that you were a slave was precisely the same way that we ensured that we don't do that to a slave. The Torah is injecting an incredible amount of dignity to this caste, to this, to this group of people. And we have Rav Cook who justifies it, suggesting the novel idea that actually owning in some ways ensures better treatment of those who are, as he describes it, natural slaves, those who are naturally on the bottom rungs of society that will treat them better if we are invested in it. That's just a very uh, pragmatic approach, recognizing that we are, we have our limitations, we're, we're human. And, and basically when we have an investment in something, we take it more seriously. And just to assume that out of the goodness of our hearts, we're going to treat our minor as well, 
might not work that well. And what we need to do is to have some invested interest, whereas Ray Sachs says, no, it's not that it was uh, intrinsically moral. On the contrary, the Torah just set us along a path, and God has patience. God was expecting us to step up and do what we ultimately did. Okay? Have a wonderful day.